All right, good morning. How are you, New Live East? No, I need you to, I actually need you to do better than that. How are you this morning? Good. We're in the book of Jonah. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, I'm going to be in Jonah 1.17 all the way through chapter 2. Uh, Jonah, this beautiful book, also a subversive book, written really to challenge the people of God on their identity, how they think about outsiders and all of that. It's beautiful. So I'm going to unpack Jonah chapter 2 just a little bit this morning and then lead us to the table. Before we get into the scriptures, can we just pause our hearts? Pause this moment. Settle ourselves down. And begin to open ourselves up to the spirit of the living God. Oh, we thank you. Oh, Lord, our God, that in all ways and at all times, wherever we are, we are always on holy ground with you, always on holy ground. We thank you that the unfailing love of Yahweh fills the earth, and we don't have to run to this place or that place, this experience or that experience to try to find the love of God, but the love of God is here. You're here, present with us, seeking us out seeking our good, opening us up to you. We're so grateful for that. We're asking, oh God, that your word would be like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces this morning. That everything that needs to be cracked open would be cracked open by the word of God. That everything that needs to be burned away would be burned away by the word of God. And where we are in need of balm, of soothing, that the word would soothe us, that we'd be ministered to by it. Jesus, you are the word of God, so we pray that you would stand up in this place as the living word. We pray that you would speak here in the scriptures. We pray that you would speak here in the words of the preacher. We're asking that you would speak at the table and that you would draw us into your life anew. Granite, we're saying this morning. We're praying that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. Scripture says, Now the Lord provided. Everybody say, God provided. God provided. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish Three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I listened, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me and I said, that I've been banished from your sight. And yet, he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And to the roots of the mountains, I sank down. And the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. 
And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, the vomiting and all. Thanks be to God. Jonah, man. Jonah, the very worst missionary. Jonah, the very worst prophet. And we know the story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh, then preach against it because its wickedness has come up to me. And Jonah, as we're told in the text of Jonah chapter 1, doesn't even really deliberate about it, okay? There isn't like a wrestling back and forth. Should I go? Shouldn't I go? Do I go to Nineveh or do I run the other direction? Jonah just decides that the word of the Lord is bad enough that he flees. Now, I don't know about you, but in my disobedience, most of the time I deliberate a little bit. Jonah, the very worst missionary. Jonah, the very worst prophet of God, he just decides to hightail it. And he doesn't go just a little bit away from Nineveh. He goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction. He goes to Joppa and he finds a boat that's going to be sailing for Tarshish. If you don't know anything about ancient geography, Tarshish is like as far away from Nineveh, both geographically and even culturally as you can get. Nineveh, this bloodthirsty ancient city. Tarshish was kind of nice and prosperous and happy and it was good. So Jonah goes, there's no way I'm going to Nineveh. I'm going in the opposite direction. He does. He starts to flee. And as you know, the Lord begins to chase him down. Sends a great storm upon the sea and the waves are engulfing the boat and the sailors go down to Jonah where Jonah is sleeping in the hull of the ship. Like Jonah, you're not even tormented in your soul about your disobedience. You're so happy about what you've done that you can sleep in the hull of this ship. And they go, Jonah, why don't you call on your God and, you know, offer a sacrifice to him. Do something, Jonah. Maybe it'll avert this disaster. And Jonah doesn't even respond to what they do, those sailors. These pagan sailors, as they go up to the deck of the ship and they start calling on their gods. And finally, Jonah comes up and he goes, hey, guys, listen. I know what's going on here. I'm a Hebrew. I'm running away from the Lord. And this storm has come upon us because of me. And they go, what do you want us to do? And he goes, just throw me into the ocean and everything will grow calm. Now, on the surface of it, this looks really self-sacrificing, doesn't it? Oh, Jonah, brave Jonah. Jonah who realizes that his God will be placated by the sacrifice of his life. And so Jonah says, if you guys just throw me over, then everything will go back to normal. So on the surface of it, it's a really self-sacrificing thing to do, isn't it? But I'm just a little bit skeptical of Jonah's act of self-sacrifice. I think actually what Jonah is doing is he's seizing an opportunity. He's going, oh, I've got it. I can preserve my reputation with these sailors and get as far away from God as I can possibly get, even farther away than Tarshish. 
if I die, then I'm definitely absolved of any responsibility or obligation to go to Nineveh. I can't go there if I'm dead. Are you hearing me this morning? This is like selfish self-sacrifice, okay? It's not an altruistic thing that Jonah's doing. What Jonah is doing is like fundamentally selfish. And so, and the sailors, by the way, are like these really righteous men. They go, oh gosh, I think this is the only option. And they start calling out on Yahweh. Yahweh, don't hold us accountable for this. (laughs) We're so sorry, but he told us what was going on. And so they throw him overboard. Jonah, guys, is doing his level best to get away from Yahweh. And yet we read that Yahweh, what's the word there? Yeah, Yahweh provided a fish. He provided a fish. Jonah is trying to flee from God, and yet God, in the murky, watery depths of the sea, decides to provide Jonah with a fish. Now, for us, you know, we live in the age of science, and so all of the mystery is gone from nature for us. But the ancient readers of Scripture, when they heard about the sea and the storm and the great fish, they would have heard things that we don't hear. For the ancient readers of Scripture, the sea had like a mythical quality to it, okay? The sea was like a representation of primordial chaos. So you remember the opening lines of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the... And the Spirit of God was hovering... Where? Over the waters. The waters were like this representation of primeval chaos. I mean, do you remember when after the creation story, God establishes mankind, they rebel against him. What happens in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8? The Lord sends what? The flood. What happens? The, the watery depths break open under the land and everything is engulfed. It's this like chaos, darkness, madness. It's the sea closing in over everything that's good. It had this like mythical quality to them. And of course, the other thing that had a mythical quality was everything that dwelt inside that primordial chaos. So you read sometimes the writers of scriptures talk about the Leviathan that lurks in the depths of the sea. You have primordial chaos and then you have those forces of evil that lurk in the depths of the sea. I know it's very hard for us to get our minds into this, but it's maybe a little little bit like if you can imagine being stranded on a life raft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at night. How would you feel? All right? Yeah, I mean, you'd be scared like at a cellular level. You'd be terrified of what is down there. What's lurking below me? What's going to happen to me? Everything in your body would lock up. So the Hebrew readers of this text, what they know is that Jonah has cast himself into Sheol, He's cast himself into this utterly dark, watery, chaotic depth. And yet they also know, the Hebrew readers of Scripture and the writers of Scripture, also know something about the sea and the beasts that dwell in it that maybe other people in the ancient Near East didn't know. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 104. The psalmist writes, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures 
beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and what else? The Leviathan, which what? You formed a, to, what's that, to frolic there. So like, to the biblical imagination, God so supervenes all things that those things that ought to rightfully terrify us are not a terror to God. In fact, they're just little playthings in his kingdom. The sea, it's vast and spacious, but there's lots of good stuff in it. And Leviathan, which we are all terrified of, you actually form to frolic there. Leviathan is like a playful little animal in the watery depths. And so, Leviathan is so under the command of God and so... Uh, uh, subordinate to Yahweh. That Yahweh, when Yahweh needs something done, he can say, hey, Leviathan, over here real quick. You see, I got this prophet that's wandering away from me. I got the very worst prophet that I've ever called is doing his level best to get away from me. So Leviathan, what I need you to do is I need you to swallow this guy up. Leviathan obeys Yahweh. Yahweh sends Leviathan to swallow up Jonah. This isn't just a bad thing that's happened to him. Like God has somehow entered in to the strength and the agency of Leviathan to get God's work done in Jonah's life. Are you tracking with me this morning? Leviathan serves Yahweh as all things serve Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, this morning we're on the threshold, I think, of a very great mystery It's the mystery of how God uses our own rebellion against us to save us. If you don't know this about our God yet, know it now. God, God, in his absolute commitment to be God with us and to be God for us, all the days of our lives will use even our own rebellion against us to save us. It's just the way that he operates. God does not just operate in the world of nice things. He doesn't just operate in the world of good circumstances or righteous choices. God is so above us and beyond us and transcend us, transcendent beyond us that he's not locked up just by good things. But he operates in and around and through all things, even our own rebellion. The great St. Augustine actually said when he, in his book, The Confessions, if you never read The Confessions, you need to read it. It's incredible. And Augustine is talking about his spiritual journey. Augustine had a praying mom who was praying him into the kingdom all the days of his life. But Augustine is wayward, searching after meaning in sex and in pleasure and in you know, trying to climb the social ladder and an achievement and all of that stuff. And at one point, Augustine actually says that, God, you were leading me on a journey by my desires that was to put an end to those same desires. In other words, this is what God does. That what he does is he uses the momentum of our rebellion against us to judo chop us into the kingdom of God. This is what he does. Think about the story in the New Testament of the prodigal son. That there's a man who has two sons, and one of them, the younger one, says one day, Hey, Father, give me my share of the estate. It's a way of saying to his dad, Dad, I wish that you were dead. 
But since you can't be dead this moment, how about you just divide up the estate and give me what's mine and I'm going to get as far away from you as I can get. And so the father does. He obliges the young man, gives him a share of his estate and he takes the money and he wanders into the far country and the scripture says that he squanders his wealth in wild living. And when he had spent everything he had, his belly began to be hungry. Oh, where am I going to get anything to eat? And he sold himself out to a merchant in that country who had pigs. And he hired himself out to that man. And the scripture says that he longed to fill his belly even with what the pigs were eating. But nobody gave him anything. And all of a sudden, one day, what happens? What am I doing out here? Why am I so far from my father's home? Like I had it made. I had everything that I could have ever wanted and everything that I needed. I had it all and I spent it all and I've degraded myself and made a fool of myself and I'm on the brink of death and the pigs have it better than me. And it's in that moment of feeling that pain the pain of his choices, the pain of what he's done, that he comes to his senses and he goes, wait, this is so stupid. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired people. And he makes the journey back. And what happens? The father receives him with open arms, draws him in, throws a robe around his back, a crown on his head, sandals on his feet, a ring on the finger, slaughters the fattened calf, My son is home. But what is the moment for the young man? It's the moment of feeling the pain of his choices. It's the moment of reaping the bitter consequences of what he had done. The great C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, put it like this. He says, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. It insists upon being attended to. God, he says, listen to this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He shouts in our pain. See, too many of us, what what we do in our pain is we start shaking our fist at people. We I can't believe those people did that thing to me. Or we start pointing the finger at other people. Well, if it weren't for so-and-so. Well, if it weren't for those people who made those stupid choices in my job, I wouldn't be in this situation. Well, if it weren't for my parents and those dumb things they did to me when I was a little kid. Well, if it weren't for, well, if it weren't for God. God made me this way and I couldn't do any better than what I've done. What we do is we start pointing the finger at everybody else. And in the midst of our pain, what God is asking is that we would recognize the ways in which we are responsible for the moment that we are in. And that we turn our hearts back to God. This is what God does with us. As a pastor, I've been a pastor for almost 15 years now. I can't tell you the number of times I have sat with people who have made a mess of their lives. And what I'm counseling them to as a pastor, as I'm saying... Listen, would you recognize that God is in this and he's in this for your good? And the worst thing that I can do for you in this moment is to put a band-aid on everything and just tell you that it's all well. What you have to do is you have to let 
that thing burn you to the uttermost. The great Karl Barth once said that what God does is he burns us right down to faith. That he burns us right down to obedience. That he burns us right down to repentance. That God burns us right down to yes. And he doesn't just do it in some spiritual vacuum where we have a spiritual experience of God and I just felt the Holy Spirit like fired. No, often what he does, most often what he does is he lets us feel the sting of our stupidity. That's how the great father of our souls deals with us. As a father deals with his children, you know, those of you that are parents in this room, that you can follow your kids around and when they're little, you go, don't touch that, it'll hurt you. Don't stick your finger over here, it'll zap you, you know. You're always trying to do this stuff to protect your kids, but there is a point that you reach with them that unless they actually feel it, they can't learn it in the way that they need to learn it to protect themselves in the future. Quote the great Gandalf of Lord of the Rings. Gandalf said that the burned hand teaches best. (laughs) Sometimes God will just allow that. He'll protect us here and there and keep us safe and mitigate the consequences of our choices where he can. But there's a point that sometimes we reach with God where God goes, if this is what you want to do, then you can have it that way. And I'm going to work through that to teach you. I'm going to send Leviathan. And you're going to sit for three days and three nights in the slimy belly of that beast until you come to your senses and you go, Lord, from the depths I'm crying to you, God, hear my voice. And you know that God would rather have it another way. In a perfect world, that doesn't have to happen, but God will take any repentance he can get. (laughs) If it provokes yes in you, if it provokes obedience in you, if it awakens righteous longing to return to the Lord in you, that's what he'll take. If all that he can get from you is just a desire to get out of the belly of the beast, he'll use that. Jesus said that a bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. If the only embers of your faith are the embers of a desire just to get out of that horrible circumstance, he'll use that. He will use that. He will use that. The readers of this text of Jonah, I think, related to what was happening in chapter 2. Israel, after hundreds of years of disobedience had been hauled away into exile. 722, the Assyrians came. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They took away the northern kingdom into exile. 586 BC, the Babylonians came and ransacked Judah. They took Judah into exile. And you had better believe that those of Judah who were reading Jonah chapter 2, they understood that they were in exactly that situation that they had rebelled against the Lord, that they had given God the stiff arm and pushed away from him. And God had allowed them to reap the bitter consequences of their choice. And so he threw them into the waters of Babylon, the waters of exile. And the cry went up from Judah by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and we wept and we remembered Zion. For there our tormentors demanded of us songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you and consider Jerusalem my highest joy. See, what happened to Israel in Babylon is they got swallowed up. And right in the middle of that place, they began to say, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will restore us. He will bind up our wounds again. And we will return to the Lord. And he will come to us like the winter rains and like the spring rains that water the earth. What happened to them in exile was that a desire for righteousness awoke in them. And don't you understand, brothers and sisters, the best thing that can happen to us is that a desire for righteousness awakens in us. God is not just interested in making our lives wonderful on the world's terms. If he has to make our lives a living hell to get us to come back to him, you had better believe that as a father with his children, that is what he's going to do. He's got to burn us down to chase us into heaven. That is what he's going to do. The psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will chase me down all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sometimes you got to feel God's goodness and mercy as sting. Sometimes you got to feel God's goodness and mercy as ouch. Sometimes you've got to feel God's goodness and mercy as a deep discomfort before it awakens something in you. One commentator of the Old Testament text, Philip Carey, commenting on Jonah chapter 2, he says that what Jonah discovers in the belly of the beast is that there is a deep beyond the deep. Jillian, at the beginning of the service here, quoting from Psalm 139, if there is from me a text of Scripture that captures who God is for us better than Psalm 139, I'm not, I'm not sure that I know what it is. The psalmist said that if I rise to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed, where? Sheol, in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, the psalmist says, even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, the psalmist says, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness He's as light to you. Jonah discovers that there is a deep beyond the deep. Don't you understand, guys? God called Jonah to fulfill a task. And Jonah ran as far away from God as he could possibly get. And he ran right into the arms of God. <laughs> there is nowhere you can go. And there is no need to go there. But if you have to, he will find you there too. Jesus in the New Testament called himself the sign of Jonah. He said that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the beast, so the Son of Man, he says, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is God in the flesh who has lived the fullness of of the human experience so that there is nowhere that we can go that he has not gone ahead of time. 
You cannot outrun Jesus. <laughs> you cannot outrun Jesus. He's lived it all. He's gone into the far country. He's gone where you and I tried to go in rebellion against God. He has sunk into the depths. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has tasted Sheol. The belly of the beast closed around Jesus. And you know what the beast discovered? That it could not hold him. And the beast itself was consumed by the power of the resurrection. And now, brothers and sisters, it's resurrection everywhere. And what happens in our baptism is that we die with Jesus Christ. <laughs> he swallows us up in the torrent, the river of his love. And we're buried with him and we're raised to new life with him. And we're given a fresh start in the love of Jesus. There is nowhere that we can go from the love of Jesus. One of the old songs of the church, I think, captures it best. 1875, this was written. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. Leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loves us, ever loves us, changes never, nevermore. <laughs> that song was written by a man by the name of Samuel Trevor Francis. When he was a teenager, Samuel Francis was so overcome by depression, he stood at a bridge overlooking the Thames River, contemplating suicide. And he had in that moment an experience of the love of Jesus that changed him forever, rescued him from the edge of that bridge, brought him back into his life, and all of a sudden God began to put, he was just a London merchant, all of a sudden the Lord began to put songs and poetry in his heart. He began to preach the gospel all over the United Kingdom. Because he experienced right there at the edge of the cliff that even God was there. And knowing that God was there in that space somehow brought him back. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that there is nowhere that you can go from the love of Jesus. And there is no reason for you to go away from it. Situate yourself inside of it. And watch what God does.